Hello, everybody. This is Kerry Parker, and welcome to another edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We've got a little bit of news to catch up on first, and then we will be having an excellent interview with Daniel Davis from DuckDuckGo. So I definitely think the big uh, news this week is the massive dump of documents, uh, secret documents, documents from the CIA uh, on WikiLeaks, the, uh, what's been dubbed the Vault 7 uh, dump, I guess, or Vault 7 documents. Um, something like almost 9,000 pages of internal secret CIA documents um, that were released by WikiLeaks. And there's a lot of really interesting aspects to this. Uh, and so I think it's a great news topic for the week. And let's uh, let's talk about this a little bit and, and what we know, what we don't know, uh, what's important, and frankly, what's not so important. Um, so first of all, um, in case you haven't heard, um, WikiLeaks um, published a bunch of documents, what they actually say is the first of many more to come, um, of what appear to be internal CIA documents detailing uh, tools and techniques that they use to hack into people's devices. That would be smartphones, um, computers, uh, home routers, even televisions, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, so far, we believe this information is probably real. Um, this uh, information also kind of appears to be at least one to two years old, um, which has some uh, silver lining benefits uh, in that most of the stuff that's detailed there, as far as we know, is probably mostly fixed. Uh, most of these kind of vulnerabilities uh, and exploits, uh, things we call zero-day uh, vulnerabilities or zero-day exploits, um, get patched over time uh, because these companies care about security. They learn about these bugs and they fix them. And it's the bugs that allow um, hackers and uh, groups like the CIA to get into our devices and make them do things they weren't supposed to do. Um, zero day, by the way, is, uh, is a term you'll hear a lot. The, the idea, the, the meaning of the term is that it's the, the first day of knowing about something that has been out there for some amount of time. So the bad guys probably know about it, but it's the first time we know about it. So it's the day zero. So they're called zero day, um, exploits. Uh, what else do we know? Well, we, we really don't know who leaked it. I mean, obviously WikiLeaks published it. We don't know who gave this information to WikiLeaks. So was it uh, somebody working within the CIA who's doing a whistleblower kind of a thing? Um, or was it some uh, foreign government that hacked into the CIA and decided it would be a good idea to embarrass the CIA by publishing this information? Uh, we really don't know. Uh, we also don't know why it was leaked, because we don't know who. Uh, we, can, we can't even really speculate as to why this might have been released. Those are very important questions to ask and understand at some point. Uh, but at this point, from what I've read, we don't know either. Um, we also don't know um, who, if anybody specifically, was targeted with these techniques. Um, that is, it, was, it, it seemed to be more of like a, a, just a laundry list of techniques and tools um, that they use, but not really any information about uh, specific people that were targeted or how or why they were used. Um, so for example, we don't know that these tools were used against us citizens, for example, which if they are CIA, CIA tools and techniques, they should not have been the CIA is, um, we're not supposed to spy on our own citizens. Right. So, um, we don't, we don't know that these were used actually even illegally. Uh, we just know that these were tips and techniques that, uh, our tools and techniques, uh, that the CIA 
had used, or in some cases were proposing being used. Some of these were just sort of proof of concept or uh, ideas that uh, may not even have been fully fleshed out. So that kind of tamps down a little bit of uh, the hysteria around some of these things. Um, Let's also talk a little bit about first what was not so important and things that maybe were kind of implied that were important. Um, All of these hacks appeared to be of the targeted surveillance variety. Um, In other words, it's about saying we need to spy on that person. What kind of things could we do to bug their phones or bug their apartments or um, listen and watch them, whatever the case may be for that person. And that's distinct from mass surveillance. Some of the kind of things that we heard from Edward Snowden that the NSA was doing to just hoover up um, all sorts of information from everybody all at once and store it forever. That's a very, very different thing. Um, In particular, targeted surveillance, that's kind of what the CIA is supposed to do. That's what spies do. They they get secrets from people. And it's usually people outside the U.S., or non-U.S. citizens, maybe is a better way to put that. That's that's spycraft. Everybody does that. Um, all all countries have spies, and that's kind of what spies are supposed to do. Uh, so that in and of itself is this is not a negative thing necessarily. Now, of course, they could have used these techniques illegally, but we don't know that at least not yet. Um, but it's important to realize that that that's very different from mass surveillance, uh, mass warrantless uh, surveillance. Uh, of particularly of U.S. citizens, but really of anybody. Let's face it; that's that's a much bigger and much different issue. The other thing to realize is that these kind of things that they're talking about are what we would call high risk attacks because they're targeted. Um, you actually have a, um, and many of these things actually required physical access to the the person's devices. Uh, you're at a much higher risk uh, of being detected, um, which is something spies generally do not want to do. Uh, the NSA and a lot of the things that they were doing, uh, the prison program and such, were completely undetectable to the average person. All this information was just getting stored as it went by. You, ha- you would have no way of knowing that this was being done. Uh, so it's important, I think, to understand that those are some key things about this that really aren't important, that really shouldn't be shocking, that uh, probably aren't illegal. Um, this is normal. This, uh, the only thing that was kind of embarrassing a, is that the CIA got hacked, that, that someone got in and released this stuff. And it kind of gave everybody uh, a very concrete notion of the kind of things that they do or would like to do. Um, you know, we, we anybody who's in the spy game probably would have guessed most of these things already, but it's kind of different to see it in concrete form. Let's talk about one of the acts, uh, one of the things in particular that was in there that got a lot of press because it had a really cool name and it sounded really scary. And that was this part of the pro- one of the programs that was released in this thing was called Weeping Angel. Um, which of course you know, sounds straight out of a spy novel, right? Um, and Weeping Angel was a program that allowed the CIA or whoever had this um, hack to go into certain Samsung televisions, smart TVs, uh, and turn on the TV's microphone and turn on the TV's Wi-Fi while making the TV simultaneously appeared to be turned off. So the power light was off. Uh, if there was a little light next to the camera, that light was off. Um, so the user would, by looking at the television, think that it's just turned off, but in actuality, it's on and listening and sending that information back to the CIA. So, you know, that's spooky, that's scary. Oh my God, <laughs> is the CIA turning on my television and listen to everybody, you know, in America that's a Samsung television and spying on them? Well, no, probably not. So for a couple of reasons. First of all, 
um, the hack, uh, I believe, required physical access to the television. So this is not something that someone is doing remotely um, from some computer off on the Internet somewhere. Uh, they actually would have had to come into your house at some point and install via a little USB stick malware on your Samsung television. So there's a couple things there. First of all, they had to get physical access. So they're not doing this indiscriminately to everybody in the country. They had to target somebody. They had to say, this guy is under suspicion. I'm going to get a warrant. Well, if it's a spy situation, it's out of the country, so the warrants don't count. But anyway, they would have had to break into this person's house surreptitiously and install the software in this little USB stick. So not only was there a risk of getting discovered when they did that, but now you've got this USB stick sticking in the back of the Samsung television that wasn't there before. Um, so... You know, for all the attention this thing got, this, the weeping angel thing is, you know, not quite as um, uh, dire as it sounds or scary as it sounds. Well, now let's let's talk about what actually what is important, um, or at least what I think is important about this story, and something that I think gets missed a lot when these things are discussed. And that is that the CIA appears to be hoarding software vulnerabilities. That is their internal hackers, their, their, um, spies have figured out vulnerabilities, bugs in the software of consumer devices. And instead of going to the manufacturers of the software or the hardware and saying, Hey, you got a problem here. You better fix this. They say, you know what? Let's just sit on this. Cause we might want to use this sometime to spy on somebody. Now, this is obviously a thorny issue. It's not exactly white and black. Um, but let's think about this for a little bit. What that's basically saying is the CIA is putting their need for potential spying capability in front of the safety of the U.S. people in general. Why? Well, if the CIA or the NSA or the FBI or whoever can find these bugs, so can hackers. So it's not only possible, but it's actually likely that a good portion of these same bugs are currently being used and abused by people we would dub bad, bad guys. Now, that could be hackers, that could be foreign governments, and or, or you know, anybody, really. You know, some high school kid who happens to stumble across this on the web because these things are often published among hacker communities and says, hey, let's spy on my girlfriend or whatever, or ex-girlfriend. Um, so we've got to realize that just because the CIA found them doesn't mean that they can sit on those things and assume that no one else has found those too. So that really means that everyone else is also at risk and they're keeping everybody at risk by keeping this to themselves, hoping that either nobody else finds it uh, before, uh, before they get to use it um, or that no real damage is done by someone else who has also found this bug. Um, realize of course that, you know, it's not just you and me that these, that these hacks could be used against, right? If our CIA found it, then other foreign spy agencies could, quite well have found it too and be using it against our spies, our diplomats, our politicians, our, our companies to uh, take um, uh, trade secrets. Um, so how do you draw that line? How do you decide what sort of a vulnerability you keep to yourself when really you're, you're leaving the people that you're trying to protect vulnerable uh, um, from other bad people from using these same things? And that's really the point I wanted to make is that First of all, these hacks just don't say don't stay secret. This is there's a perfect example of why you can't sit on these things and assume that because you know it, nobody else will ever know it because you, you can keep a secret. It just doesn't work that way. These things do get out, and also they're just because you found them doesn't mean that nobody else did. In fact, it probably means someone else did find them. So 
but the point I want to make and the point that I want to draw a close on this article is that I believe personally that what they really should be doing is helping everybody be more secure. And as they find these vulnerabilities, at least for the most part, they really should be getting them fixed. And the responsible way to do that is to approach the companies that have the bugs and say, we found this bug. We're not going to make it public yet, but you know, I'll give you some reasonable amount of time to fix it. Um, and then we need to tell everybody to update their software. Okay, so that's our news for the week and my commentary on what's important. Uh, now let's get into our interview with Daniel Davis. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com to get all the latest. Download our new apps and be part of the most informed audience in broadcast. Well, I'm not a vitamin kind of guy, but I also discovered playing hero with your health doesn't work either. I found myself in the hospital, you know, working long hours, had trouble sleeping, low energy even. Well, I knew something had to change. Well, then someone sent me a product called Healthy Cell Pro and told me to take it for 30 days. I figured, what do I got to lose? Three weeks into a one-month supply, the results blew me away. More restful sleep, a shopper focus. Even more energy. That's even for Malcolm Aloud, that is. Nobel Prize nominee inventor Dr. Vincent Giampapa. He explains it this way. It works by infusing your cells with over 60 plant-derived phytonutrients that target the building block of your body, the cell. I liked it so much, I asked the company for a special deal for you. Instead of $110 plus shipping, you get it for just $79.99 for the monthly plan, plus free shipping. Just go to HealthyCell.com. Use the limited time offer code out loud. All right, everybody, and as promised, we are here with Daniel Davis. He's a community manager at DuckDuckGo, which is the search engine that does not track you. Uh, like most of the team at DuckDuckGo, Daniel works remotely. In fact, he's in Japan. So thank you very much for making this happen, Daniel. Hi, you're welcome. Good to speak with you. We hear this a lot uh, on the news, uh, on the web, people saying, oh, you're, you're constantly being tracked, but I, I have a feeling that most people don't really have a, a real notion of what that means. So let's, let's start with just like a basic notion of what does it mean when I say that you're being tracked when you surf the web? Um, okay, I can give you a good example. The other day, I, I used various web browsers, and I used one that I don't have any kind of tracking protection on, and I was looking at buying a, a secondhand car. And then the following day, I went to look at a totally separate website, um, and up popped these adverts for a second-hand car. Not only that, it was the type that I've been looking at. <laughs> and yeah, that kind of uh, freaked me out. This website, I think it was a news website or something, nothing to do with you know <laughs> a, a second-hand car website, but it somehow knew what I'd been looking at the day before after I you know, closed my computer. So that's kind of scary, and that's a, a prime example of tracking. Yeah. It's not just you know in one session when you're, when you're browsing, it's sort of following you around... Uh, over time um when something's on the in internet it stays on the internet nothing yes. gets forgotten so your records once they've been uh, recorded somewhere they're pretty much there forever i hear people talk about this and i i don't because i've done so many things to to stop myself from being tracked so i don't notice these things but i have people give you that exact same story many times how creepy it is well they'll go for they'll, they'll do something on one website then they'll go to some other website completely unrelated and get some advertisement that is exactly for the ad, the thing they were just looking at on some on the other website, so a perfect example. Mm -hmm. All right, so in, yeah, 
in, in this case, it's searching for a cow, you know, which is nothing, no big deal. Um, I have nothing to hide there. <laughs> um, but it could have been something much more embarrassing, much more sensitive, or in some countries, it could have been something that would uh, cause me a lot of trouble with, uh, um, with the authorities or with some, you know, oppressive regime. Absolutely. Uh, and we'll certainly talk about that uh, coming up. But so let's talk a little bit about why is this happening? Why, why are we being tracked? What, why are they doing this? What's the whole point? I think it all comes down to, to money um, in a lot of senses. But what we're trying to do is so that it, it's, a, it's a myth, really. You don't need to track people to make money on the Internet. Um, obviously, for advertising, the more you know about a person, the more you can target that, uh, any advert to really get them to click on the link and to take their credit card out. But uh, what we do at DuckDuckGo is we show you adverts related to your search, not to who you are. So we don't know if you've searched the day before or the month before, but when you do a search for some kind of car, we'll show you perhaps an advert for that kind of car, uh, and that's it. Right. And, and the next day, we don't know if you're still searching for the same thing or who you are, if you're a different person. Uh, so we're only about the search um, query that you typed in for at that particular time. Um, and yeah, we're a profitable company. We're, thankfully, we're growing. So it shows that it, it does work if you, you can um, run a business like that. And I think that's precisely right. So it's, it's, I kind of think about it, it, it used to be more like TV advertising, where what they're doing is they're saying, okay, the people that like to watch this show tend to be men from the age of 30 to 50 or something like that. So they, they have general demographics, perhaps. And, and so if you're going to a website about cars, then you might be interested in, I don't know, something car related. <laughs> but, you know, so the advertisement in there would be targeted to people because of the website you're on, for example, but it's not targeted at you specifically. Um, and But it's all about money, right? So these advertisers, to, to make their product more valuable to the people that if someone comes to them and says, I want, I want targeted ads, or I want ads to people it, that can charge more money if they can convince the people st the, buying the ads that not only am I getting this male demographic, but I'm, I actually I know this guy's income level. I know where he's from. Uh, all these other things that make that, that ad much more valuable. So it's all about making more money with these ads, right? Um, I think it is, yes. Um, I have to say it's not just financial. Yeah, you can get cases where it's more about control and power. For example, in uh, an election process, you want to know as much as you can about people in a particular demographic who's best to target. Um, so again, the more data you have, the more useful that is. But I think it's getting to a point where people have kind of realized that this is happening. And at some point, it's no that's enough. This has gone going too far. We want to go back to, I don't want to say go back to the olden days, but we want to go back to less tracking when we were more aware of the, the privacy that we had. I, I honestly hope you're right. But I, I think the other thing to me that strikes me about the, the web economy is that it's all quote unquote free. And the, the quote I love about this, and I'm sure it's been misquoted and misattributed many times is that if the product is free, you are the product, right? Because, you know, for, for these companies to provide these, they have to pay somehow for these services, right? That cost them money to do it. So if they're giving it to you for free, they do have to make money somewhere. But I, obviously, yes, you're right. There are, there are many other reasons besides money as a motivator. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I totally agree. The, uh, some of these websites, uh, especially um, in the publishing industry, they rely on advertising. I think some of them try a paywall, some of them try contributions. The Guardian at the moment has a contribution um, campaign. Um, but it's very, very difficult to get people to pay, especially stuff that they're now used to having for free. Um, so I think going forward, it's, there's, there's still some kind of perfect solution that's missing. But we're trying to f provide one part of, of that solution by giving people a choice. 
Um, so some people may want to be tracked because they want um, to support the websites. Personally, I like supporting um, websites that show ads on a site-by-site -site basis. So I will block or unblock ads depending on how annoying they are. Um, and in other cases, you know, many people are happy to pay for services. I pay for my email service rather than use a free service because um, I'm confident it gives me more more privacy. Fantastic. Now, like, who owns this data? So that's another issue I kind of have with it. It seems like in a perfect world, I would have at least some ownership or some control over my data. And yet, that seems to be absolutely not the case. How do we, how do we, is there any way for us to get ownership of, of this data or control of it? Um, that's a yeah, very difficult question, I think. Um, we don't really know uh, who owns it right at the end. Even uh, the company that we think does uh, relies very often on some third-party server, so it could be um, a separate company has access to it. Um, one thing we did, though, is we tried to look at um, who exactly is, is tracking us as a, in, in aggregate, and we found a survey done by Princeton, actually, Princeton University, and they looked at the top million websites um, and looked at it from the point of view of tracking. And they found that out of the top 1 million websites, 75% of those sites had Google trackers on them. Wow. Um, so very often we might look at the, if, if you're technical, you might look at the code behind the website and it points to different uh, domains, like double click, for example. But ultimately that is uh, owned and controlled by, by Google. And then you've got various other large tech companies. I think Facebook was one of them. Um, they go down a sort of diminishing returns almost, but um, you know, Google trackers were the big one. And I, uh, that's fascinating. And I, I think you actually mentioned this in some of our pre-show talk that Google is, um, Google's, we think of Google as a search company. It's really an advertising company. That's right. Yeah, that's what they get the vast majority of their um, uh, revenue from. They provide many other services, of course, and and a lot of very good services. I think nearly all of them free for consumers. But yeah, you're paying for that by giving them uh, your information, which they then use for um, increasing increased advertising revenue. All right, so let's 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 talk a little bit about the the nuts and bolts of how this actually works. And I and I I don't want to get uber technical, um, but I'd, I'd still I think it's instructive to kind of walk through the various ways um, that we were, that we we're being tracked because they're actually so many um let's 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 walk through a little bit of that how is this actually being done what how are we being tracked uh that's good uh, question let's let's think about an advert a basic advert uh in the good old days so when i started on the web um if i had an advert on my site i would have probably just put um an image up there and it would be a plain image um and then i would monitor how how many times that was clicked um then as things progressed we would have put a cookie uh, so a cookie is in itself nothing uh, dangerous, nothing bad. It's just um, a small text file on your computer with a random number. So by itself, it, it doesn't have any information. Um, but that cookie with that particular random number uh, could then be placed on other websites or other things that you view. So when that random number is the same, they know it's the same person, effectively. So it's, a, it's an identifier. And then the data they collect about you would then be stored in the back end. So adverts would then have, have cookies to work out who you are and what else you've been looking at. Um, we've seen more and more ad blockers um, being uh, added to extension um, repositories. So you can now get ad blocking extensions for pretty much any browser. So other ways of serving adverts to get around that 
to include lots of JavaScript. In, in some some cases, you might see an advert, and it's effectively a mini website. It looks like it's just an image, but in the back end, it's a, a mini website. It might be embedded in the iframe. It could be uh, using Flash. So there are many ways that advertising uh, companies and the technologies that serve these ads get around us blocking cookies. If we use JavaScript, we can now use other ways to identify who you are. So let's say you are browsing the web, you're using a, an ad blocker which blocks cookies. Uh, I can use JavaScript to detect uh, the capabilities of your browser. So I can see there are some web technologies that are just coming out. The very latest browsers have it. Uh, browsers that are a couple of years old don't have it. So I can see if you've got these latest technologies or not. Uh, I can see the preferred language that you have. So for example, my browsers, is, I'm, the machine I'm using is actually a Japanese machine. So my preferred language is Japanese, but also I have um, the British UK um, set up sometimes. Mm. So um, alternatively, I have that. So if somebody looks at me surfing the web, they can detect the capabilities of my browser. They can see that I prefer Japanese and British uh, English to American English uh, or Australian English. Um, they can see the size of my screen. So it's, um, for example, I don't know, uh, 1280 uh, pixels wide or perhaps. All these tiny little data points eventually make up a sort of unique profile or almost unique profile of that particular user. So even though we block cookies, there are other ways to work out who this person is and consequently what else they're looking at. This sort of, um, sort of profiling is actually used even when we're um, browsing in so-called private browsing mode or incognito mode. So this is one thing we found. We did a survey of nearly 6,000 uh, American adults, and we found that um, the, the majority underestimated what private browsing mode actually does. So mm. many think that I go into private browsing mode, I'm now not tracked, I'm anonymous on the internet, and sadly, that's, that's definitely not true. Yes. Now, if somebody else uses your computer after you, and you've been using uh, private browsing mode, they won't see your history, uh, they won't see any cookies because those are automatically deleted. So it's great for your um, so-called uh, local privacy on the machine you're actually using, but it's not good for online privacy. Um, it's still very easy for um, any websites to track what you're doing, even in that incognito mode. That's that's absolutely correct. Just fascinating info. Let's back up a little bit. I want to unpack that a little bit more, paraphrase back a little bit so we make sure the audience is following all that. So back cookies in the old days were very innocuous little as you said, little data files that are dropped on your computer. And it's meant to, like, for instance, when you log into your email browser, you don't have to log in every time you come back to that web page. So it'll drop a little cookie on your thing saying, oh, this guy's already logged in. So when I come back to this web page, I see that you've got this cookie. This cookie has a little, what we call an authorization token in it. So it could say, oh, this guy's already logged in. Don't don't make him log in again. So, and, or preferences on a website, like some of the websites you can, you can say, I want... Uh, Papa John's, I want you to remember that I always like large pizzas with pepperoni. And they can drop these cookies. So it was really, initially, these cookies were for your benefit. What happens, uh, as you as you explained, is these advertisement companies, these third-party cookies, in other words, and, and you, you see this in a web browser, so I want to talk about this, third-party cookies as opposed to first-party cookies. So if I go to Papa John's, in Papa John's, the website drops a cookie, that's a first-party cookie because it's from Papa John's. But if there's an advertiser for some reason on the Papa John's website for something else. And that would be a third party. It's, and 
if that advertising company, because it's all controlled by the same company, drops a cookie and I go to another website that has advertisements from that same company, because they they can share that data, they, they can see the same cookie and that's how they track you, right? Uh, yes, yes. Um, actually, sometimes these the third-party cookies could be from a totally separate company. Like yeah, you could see a Facebook cookie on a on a news website, uh, but sometimes they can be just different servers owned by the same uh, company. Uh, I my my um, wife I installed a tracker uh, blocker on her computer uh, on her browser, and the other day she was looking at a website and the images weren't showing because the images were being hosted on a different website but still owned by the same company. Mm. So you could block third-party cookies, and yeah, in some cases it can cause you a few problems, unfortunately. Although you know it does, uh, it's still relatively effective at blocking some tracking. The other thing you mentioned was the fact that your browser gives up a lot of information about you. And again, this was the, the original thought behind a lot of these things are are, are good. They, the browser is saying, "Hey, this guy's got a Macintosh, and is here's how big his screen is, and here's his preferred language, here's information about him, so that the so that the websites you visit can customize what comes back to look best on your computer." That's what a lot of these things are. But you're, you're right in the, at the the net effect is that it kind of creates a browser fingerprint because everyone's different enough uh, that the, all these various settings, when taking in total, makes you look different and unique compared to someone else. And there's a wonderful website that the the EFF has called Panopticlick. Have you heard of that? Uh, yes, that's uh, very interesting and quite scary. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about Panopticlick. Panopticlick. Um, it'll do similar to, to what I, I just mentioned. It will look at many different factors um, to the, the, in the way that you view a web page. Um, you don't actually have to do anything, really. It'll pick up uh, lots of information about your machine, uh, about your, your computer or your, your mobile device, uh, about the screen size, about uh, the fonts you have installed, about the capabilities, um, and it'll sort of work out how unique you are effectively. Uh, every time I go on, I seem to be unique. I keep testing it just to see if I've improved, but no, it's very difficult. Um, but uh, yeah, going back to what you were saying, actually, about how the, a lot of these things were um, are, are beneficial, I, I totally agree. Um, cookies are there uh, primarily to, to help us and they remember who we are so we don't have to log in again so they do help us a lot and uh, the the new um, browsing technologies uh, that bra- the new web technologies that browsers have um, again they it can be used to detect um, who we are based on how unique it is but still they're there um, to help us to give her a better browsing experience so it's a constant balance really of uh, how much we want to move forward make technological progress how much we want convenience but also how much we want to balance that with not giving away too much information, uh, personal information. Yep, that is that, that is the battle: convenience versus security, always. And yes. Uh, so how do you? Then there's then there's a whole separate class of issue, which is Google. And I don't just mean Google the advertiser; I mean Google the service provider. So we there are so many wonder, and I have a complete love hate relationship with Google, and I, there are so many of their of, of Google services that I eagerly use and and fully enjoy, that are that are free, and I I, I know I'm giving away the farm, but I, they're just so useful. And 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 they're doing actually Google as a security company has done some fantastic things uh, for web security in general. But then there's I almost wish they could just separate the two. But so we've got Google email, we've got calendar, we've got search, we've got Google Docs now, um, all these things. What is there anything to be done other than just not use Google? 
<laughs> um, you're totally right. Uh, there are many, many um, very powerful services they provide, and you know, they have uh, so many employees. They're, they're able to uh, create products in many, many different areas. I think in many cases, there are good uh, alternatives. And some people may be fine with sticking with Google and they're comfortable that their search results are personalized for them. That's fine. But um, many people do want to, to shift away and find alternatives. So we're providing one. We're a relatively small team. So we're just concentrating on, on search at the moment. Um, but for email, there are now more and more uh, email alternatives, especially privacy-focused email alternatives. Uh, I've seen quite a few spring up actually just in the f past few years, especially since the Snowden uh, renovations, mm -hmm. revelations. Um, but equally, we have alternatives for maps, for example. Uh, openstreetmap.org is, is one that I like to use and support. There, there are many, many alternatives springing up. Sometimes they're by startups. Sometimes they're by um, other tech companies sort of branching out. So I think it is possible. story that I, that I talked about in my book, that's, that it almost sounds like an urban myth, but is, to the best of my knowledge, is, is based in fact, is the 2012 Forbes story um, about the, the, the Target shopper. There was a teenage girl whose family went to Target, and she used her, probably used her Target card. Uh, and they, they have these sort of AI, artificial intelligence sort of systems running in the background to monitor what you buy. And then they ship you coupons and such that they think might be useful based on your shopping patterns. And they actually had some sort of an algorithm running to try to determine pregnant women. And so based on her shopping, they started sending her coupons for diapers and, and things like this mm -hmm. yeah. to her home, of course, where she still lived with her parents being 16 years old. And she had not told her parents she was pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I heard that. That's that's quite, quite must have been quite a shock. And yeah, because of all the information that has been that has been caught. So yeah, she had nothing to hide. I think there are many cases where we think we have nothing to hide, but in fact, where we do. So uh, I close my curtains at night, for example. Um, I have nothing to hide, but I prefer to to stay private. Mm -hmm. uh, I wear clothes even when it's hot in the summer because I I, uh, I have something to hide, although I'm not doing anything wrong. Um, we're, we're very fortunate. We live in in developed uh, countries and democracies but in other countries um, this issue can be much much more serious where um, you're oppressed you're not you're given freedom of speech and something you do that um, in many parts of the world would be seen as absolutely fine can be seen as a crime um, and very serious consequences um, so in those cases people do have something to hide and the, the, the cost is extremely high um, the, the risks are very very high also, it can be the case where uh, mistakes are made. So, for example, just uh, today, the Edina, Minnesota, um, the, the city of Edina, a, a judge has granted the pol police the right to get the search results from everybody in the city, uh, from Google, to try and work out who has uh, committed a particular um, wire transfer fraud, this crime. And they believe that the name Douglas was used as part of this as this crime. So they want to search through the records to find anybody who has been searching for the name uh, Douglas, and then get background information on 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 those people. For example, if oh available, God. they want a social security number, name, address, and and past search history and things like that. Um, in terms of fighting crime, yes, we want to do everything we can to 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 find um, to find criminals. 
But if you're nothing to do with this and you've been searching for the name Doug, uh, Douglas very innocently, uh, you could be put under the microscope and it could be very, very difficult to try and escape from this sort of uh, uh, cycle of suspicion, if you like. Kind of related to that is uh, is identity theft, where the information that uh, the personal information that, that you give away could be um, caught or stored by by somebody who wants to use that to effectively um, become you to steal your identity. And again, as you mentioned, uh, as your um, interviewer mentioned in the previous podcast, it's extremely difficult to recover from that once yeah. the information is out there and it's been misused. Very very difficult to to get back. Absolutely. And the other thing I like to remind people. Um, is that the internet is, is, you should assume that the internet is forever. Once this data is out there and gone, you should assume that it, it's, you, can, you cannot retrieve it and it could be shared infinitely and forever. Be, the other way to look at that is we, we break the law constantly. You, you speed, you go, you go faster than the speed limit. You've, you've certainly done things that, that if someone were to catch you, um, could be used against you. And you, you've said things. Um, there's a classic quote from, uh, um, I wasn't Cardinal Richelieu. It was. Um, uh, oh yes, yes. About, yeah, I think know, it give, was. I think it was. Yes. Give, give, give me six lines from any innocent man, and I will find something in there to hang him. Right? There's. Uh, if this information is all squirreled away forever and ever, that means that if for some reason in the future, for whatever reason, someone decides that they've got something against you or want to find something against you, if they could troll through <laughs> every bit of data about you, ever since the internet started, what could they find? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Um, I, I should say at this point, um, so I've talked a lot about uh, uh, Google and uh, I should give them props. They do give you the ability to go and look at the data that they hold about you. Uh, you go to myactivity.google.com. And so they do give you uh, now um, with any uh, web company, we don't know how much they delete things when mm. they say they deleted it. So sometimes it could just be um not visible, but still archived somewhere. But anyway, um, Google gives you the chance to look at the data they have stored about you uh, and then to control it. Um, but yeah, I've seen, so we actually uh, try and educate people through our, our blog, through our Twitter account. And when we uh, told people about this, this this feature, many people came back uh, very surprised. That, wow, <laughs> I didn't believe they have uh, not just uh, browsing history, but they have everything I've said using, um, you know, OK Google, for example, mm-hmm. picked up all my uh, voice commands. Um, so yeah, it can be very surprising, and it goes back a long way. There's another one uh, for data aggregation companies. That Axiom is another one that does that is one of the da- data aggregators. When you talk, uh, you've heard big data or these, you know, companies that you've never heard of that are supposedly collecting all this data. This is one of them. They've got a website called AboutTheData.com. Uh, as well, where you can log in and they can, they'll show you everything that, well, actually, I'm sure it's not everything. They will give you a taste of what they think they know about you. Uh, and it's, it's quite a eye opening. Oh, that's a good one. Thank you. So we'll take a look at that. <laughs> um, yeah, there are other uh, similar websites where they don't actually tell you the data, but they'll uh, make it easy for you to, to close various websites that you, um, sorry, various accounts that you haven't been using. Um, so you could have an, um, a web account that you've forgotten about. It's been years since, since you used it, but your data is, is still lingering there. It you know, doesn't mm-hmm. decay or go away. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very worthwhile to think about accounts you've been using in the past. Go back and just double check what there is there. Maybe close it or maybe just you know, keep it um, so you have, still have control of it. Right. But try and delete data or even, in some cases, replace uh, 
true data with random data. For example, if it's mm. got your middle name, you might want to delete or, or replace them. That's actually a great point, and that's a that's another little tip that I that I often give people is when when you're doing security questions, because a lot of websites still give you the classic three questions, and sometimes you can't even choose what the questions are. In fact, oftentimes you can't. Where this is the process by which you can supposedly reprove to them who you are and to reset your password, for example. Uh, and what I often tell people is lie. There's no, there's no reason you have to use real information there. Just lie in a way yes. that you can remember how you lie, so that so so in the future you can know what you know what answers to give. But um, yeah, that's another way to avoid that. Yes, yes. As long as you can remember it. <laughs> right. Exactly. So since we've got a segue, let, let's talk about what what other things can we do. What are, let, let's talk about some things that we can do to mitigate or eliminate uh, some of the more harmful elements of tracking. Let, let, let's walk through some 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 stuff. Uh, okay, yeah. So if uh, we're using, um, let, let's start with, with desktop browsing. And we recommend a, a, a blocker called uh, Privacy Badger. And mm -hmm. it's created by the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, they're um, a, a nonprofit organization that actually do very work um, supporting people's digital rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have many other good resources as well. They have uh, lots of uh, guides on how to protect yourself. Yes, they love have, the EFF. Uh, Yes, uh, they recently put up um, a, a blog post about how to speak or how to contact your, um, I want to say, member of parliament, congresswoman, mm -hmm. congresswoman, to try and persuade them to, you know, uh, push back against some particular um, uh, anti-privacy uh, law, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they provide privacy badger, which will block many third-party cookies, uh, cookies and many trackers whilst you're browsing. Uh, they also provide a good um, uh, um, browser extension called HTTPS Everywhere. Yes. And what this will do is when you're uh, on a website, sometimes there will be a secure version and a non-secure version. And this will force the secure version to be used. Uh, it doesn't work on all websites because some don't have a, a secure version. Um, more and more do. Uh, and this will make sure that if there's the choice, you're given the secure version. Um, it doesn't affect the way you browse at all. It just means that when you, um, um, when the sort of browser changes pages or when you type something to a search form within that page, for example, that data is all encrypted. Nobody in the middle at a Wi-Fi cafe or, or, or even the ISP can see that data. Mm -hmm. So those are two good extensions that we recommend for desktop. Uh, thinking about mobile, uh, if we look at um, iOS first, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, um, there are various uh, privacy and security settings. But one that's not widely known is to do with advertising. And so I'm just uh, getting my phone here to help me. If you go into the settings, there is one option called privacy. And so within that, actually towards the, the bottom of the screen on my device, there's an option called advertising. So it's sort of hidden right at the bottom of the, mm. the page. You have to scroll down. But in there, there is an option to limit ad tracking. And it's off by default. If you turn that on, then you won't be tracked using ads across different apps that you have installed. Okay, great. Now, unfortunately, this is not enforced. It's only done. It's only relying on the honesty of the individual app <laughs> developers. But, um, you know, Apple does sort of um, check apps when they're approved in the App Store. So we hope that... Uh, that most apps are, are respecting this. So I would recommend turning the limit ad tracking on. And then from time to time, you can also reset your advertising identifier. So your device has this unique um, ID. 
and apps can use that to recognize that you're still the same person and you've also been playing this and looking at this. If you keep resetting that effectively, um, it thinks you're, you're a new person. It thinks your device is, is a new device. So it sort of stops tracking a little bit. Okay, great. So those are a couple of things for iOS. Um, and then shifting over to Android, um, there are many different um, security and privacy settings. There is, uh, in the settings menu, an option called security. And I, look, I recommend looking through that. Within there, you can encrypt your device. Now, on iOS, I think if you set a, a password or a passcode, it automatically encrypts mm -hmm. the device. On Android, you have to do it separately. Mm -hmm. So in the settings, click um, encrypt the device. You need to set a PIN or a password to do that, which you should do anyway. Uh, and it takes you know, perhaps up to an hour to encrypt it the first time. But after that, you can just continue using your device as normal. Uh, nothing will change, but in the background, it's encrypted. What is that, what so is, and what does that buy you? Why, why would I want to do that? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, at the moment, so let, let's say uh, you've got your device, you've switched it off. Um, I get hold of your device. Um, I plug it into my computer. I can see the files you have on there. So I don't need to switch on on the phone. It's like a, a hard drive. It's like a USB stick, really. I can, I can see what's on there. I can see the photos and things you have on there. If you encrypt it, that data on your phone is turned into basically random data. It's a load of um, squiggles, ones and zeros <laughs> that nobody can make head or tail of. Uh, to decrypt it, you uh, when you first encrypted it, you would have chosen um, a password. To decrypt it, you type in the password. So when you switch your phone on, you type in the password, it, it decrypts everything for you to use. Um, it now means that, again, your phone is off, I plug it into my computer, uh, I can't tell what's on there at all. I can't even work out the, f the names of the folders and things. Yep. Um, so the data to me is just useless. But to you, as soon as you type in your password and you start using it, um, you have full access to everything as, as usual. Excellent. And uh, so we talked, you mentioned briefly earlier about uh, incognito mode or private browsing mode on, that uh, is offered by some of the browsers. Um, Talk to me about, uh, you said that that was local only. Explain a little bit more what that means and then contrast that with uh, a VPN or a virtual private network. Um, right. So let's. Uh, so the classic example for pr uh, private browsing mode is buying something for your significant partner. So let's say I'm, I'm going to buy myself a, a lovely diamond ring. I hope she's not listening to this. And um, when I, when I if, if we have, especially if we have a shared computer, if I uh, go on, let's say, let's say Amazon, um, I will look for stuff and close the browser, and then she might come and use the same thing later uh, or look over my shoulder. And then at the bottom, it will show things that you viewed recently, and it will show diamond ring or something. If I do all this in private browsing mode without logging into to any websites, everything that I do in there, every, everything in that session stays in that session. Okay. It's kind of like Fight, fight Club, basically. Fight Club for <laughs> web browsers. Uh, all right. So I can... Uh, close the browser after I've finished uh, looking at the, the diamond rings. Next time I open the browser, next time I go to Amazon, as long as I haven't logged in, uh, it will not show any trace of me looking at, at diamond rings. Um, the reason is because it has not stored a cookie, or at least it, it tried to store a cookie, but private browsing would have deleted it. Um, so there's no sort of um, identifier for me next time I go and, and browse even the same website. All the breadcrumbs are gone. Yes, yes. Um, so this is only within the, the, the computer itself. However, when I'm um, searching websites in private browsing mode, those websites are still looking at the, um, the, yeah, the, the, the browser fingerprint, for example, to, to identify who I am. So they might still know that I'm the same person. 
So websites out on the internet, no, I'm the same person. But um, the data I have locally is cleared, if that, if that makes sense. So contrast that with a, a, a virtual private network, which I, I know is a big topic, and I'm sure I will cover at some point in more detail uh, on this podcast but or on this show. But how does, it, how does that contrast with uh, VPN services? Right. So VPN services is more about um, the communication and the, and the internet usage that you have with servers and websites out there. And I actually um, uh, used a VPN a lot recently when I went traveling. Uh, I was away staying in a hotel and I was uh, sometimes in a, in a cafe. When I'm there, I'm connecting to a public Wi-Fi in a hotel or in the cafe. And within that public Wi-Fi, it's possible for other people on that network, other people using the same Wi-Fi, to see what I'm doing. If I have an, um, a secure website, let's say I search for something on DuckDuckGo, DuckDuckGo um, use, is, is secure by default, it uses HTTPS at the beginning of its address. That means it's secure, so everything I search for is encrypted and it can't be seen by anybody else in the network. But some uh, websites, um, news website, for example, uh, perhaps a shopping website, although I hope not, mm. they might not be secure. And so it's uh, possible for other people on the same network to see what I'm searching for. Email generally is not encrypted, right. and not secure. So people could see the emails that I'm sending. Um, this is, again, this is only people using the same Wi-Fi, using the same local network. Right. They'll be able to see the content of my emails and who I'm sending it to, blah, blah, blah. If I use a VPN... It's uh, a lot of people refer to it as a tunnel. Um, a VPN will connect me to a server that I trust somewhere. So it's very important to choose a VPN provider, VPN service that you trust. And uh, this is a, another separate topic. It's a very difficult topic, but referrals mm -hmm. and and knowledgeable um, information, knowledgeable research is very important there. So the information that I send um, to the internet is going through this secure tunnel which is created by this VPN provider. So as long as I trust them, other people will not be able to see my traffic. So the email data that I send cannot be seen by other people on the local network because I'm sort of bypassing them by going through this secure tunnel, which is the, the VPN. It's called a, a virtual private network. So as the name says, it's a private network. It's not, you need to initially use a public uh, network, a public Wi-Fi or you know, home network to connect to the internet, but then you, um, connect to your VPN, and that suddenly makes everything private. The end websites can still uh, track you, obviously. So um, uh, Google, Amazon, or whatever would still um, know that you're the same person and, and still keep that history of what you're searching for. But other people looking in will not be able to see. Excellent. Thank you for describing that. I, I, I will definitely, this is a, it is a complex subject uh, and one that I will touch on in the future, but I know that... Um, uh, it's a it's commonly bandied about as a, as a privacy and security mechanism. So I at least wanted to touch on it here. So it's uh, we've got it on the record. <laughs> so I will yeah. dig into it more later. Um, so, so VPN is is a topic that comes up, and it's very difficult because it has been shown that some VPN apps. There was a study uh, quite recently, and it showed that a lot of VPN apps on Android actually leak your data sometimes mm. by accident, sometimes even on purpose. <laughs> so choosing a good VPN is, is really important. Um, I like a lot of the discussions on Reddit. Reddit slash R slash privacy is a privacy subreddit where um, people of any experience, you know, complete newbies or, or experienced people can gather and ask questions and, and provide help. So I recommend going there and, and seeing 
VPN information that is available there. Excellent. That's a great, uh, great recommendation. Thanks. All right, let's wrap up with with what I always like to look at the broader solution. So we, I not only want to talk about what we can do as individuals to protect our individual privacy, maybe um, those in our family, but I always like to look one step more and like what what can we do to better things for everyone? Uh, what how do we go further and and try to reach out to our representatives or or what other things can we do that that are bigger than ourselves that that, that we could um, to try to make things better for everybody. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are many um, organizations that are working hard for our, our rights on the internet, uh, our privacy, our digital rights in general. So the EFF is, is, is a very good one. Mm -hmm. There are others. Uh, there's um, one called EPIC, Electronic Privacy Information Center. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the ACLU. Mm -hmm. um, in, in Europe, there's one called EDRI, the European Digital uh, Rights. That's what they, they okay. work for. And all of these organizations, there are more, sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting some, but um, all of these organizations are working hard to support us because on our own, often our voice is, is very small and very quiet and it's difficult to make a big impact. I think if we write individually to our representatives, that surprisingly has a bigger impact than we sometimes think. Yes. Um, but uh, if, if we want to go further than that, then supporting these organizations sort of magnifies that, that impact. Um, the EFF has, a, as I said, has a very good blog post about how you can write to your representative in an effective way. And then, of course, other, other ways of supporting these organizations um, is through membership, is through donations. Um, so we try to do that as well, support the um, privacy organizations um, that help bring us closest uh, to our vision. Yes. Uh, so the overall vision of DuckDuckGo is to um, improve the, the standard of trust online. And it can't be done by one person or by one organization. It needs coordinated effort from all these different organizations. So I'd say um, choose a, a local representative that, that um, represents you and that you think you can influence. And then there are so many organizations out there. I'd perhaps start with just one that you feel is, is close to, to your heart. Some are more politically focused. Um, uh, some are more focused on privacy itself or some are more focused on the technology choose something and, and try and support that. It doesn't have to be financial either. It could be through time, um, through promotion and spreading the word. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I, those are exactly the organizations I also would have named. Um, the only thing I would add to that, um, that I like to, that I, is that to tell people is get, get used to paying for things. <laughs> you know, there, there, there are, you know, for these companies to get away, to get off this ad based economy, they have to be shown that people are willing to pay for their privacy uh, and security and are, will go the extra mile. And so vote, uh, not only vote with the, uh, on the ballot, but vote with your pocketbook. Uh, and just realize that you've, you're gonna have, we've got to get away from these free, quote-unquote, free services because they're not free. We are paying for them in other ways. And I believe that we're paying way, way too much. Um, so we need to start putting our money, where our money where our mouth is on some of these things as well. Yeah, it's very true, yes. Um, actually, I should mention one more thing. Um, th these uh, organizations, are, uh, in, in addition to these organizations, there's also the press. The press as a whole mm -hmm. is extremely important. And good reporting, good journalism is, is uh, often the, the foundation of, of democracies and, and the information that we have to make decisions about how we behave and, and how we act. Um, so we strongly support the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Yep. And... They're currently working very hard to um, provide ways for journalists uh, and and sources of information to anonymously and and securely get that information out to us 
ordinary people. Yes, and ProPublica is another one that I, that I that I think is doing some good work. Uh, and there are many. You're right. It, just do some just do some searching and use DuckDuckGo while you do it. <laughs> um, oh, we wouldn't mind that at all. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very, very much. This has been extremely informative. Um, I very much appreciate you coming, especially all the way in from Japan. Um, thank you for your time, and uh, I look forward to maybe doing this again sometime. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah. So a lot of stuff we covered is, is sometimes gets a bit complicated, but we're trying to educate people in understandable ways. So we have a, a Twitter account where people can follow us, and we have a blog, spreadprivacy.com, where we have more of this information with um, with illustrations and, and easy to understand examples. Yes, absolutely. And of course, if you go to the uh, America Out Loud website, if you go to the, to the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragon podcast, we will also have these uh, uh, this various information there uh, as well. So again, thank you very much, Daniel, and uh, good morning to you. <laughs> You're welcome. It's been fun, and good evening to you. Bye.